Open your Bibles to uh, Mark 6. We're going to get right into this. I'll do jokes some other time. I just, God has been stirring up hearts, and I spent the first five minutes of the first uh, service making sure people knew I loved them. And if you get nothing out of what was said today, thank you. In fact, when you came up here, I thought you were supposed to sing a song, so I appreciate your obedience. Um, because what we saw things doing, and Liz singing a song, and other people sharing, is exactly what we're going to nail on today. And I appreciate it when people go and say yes to when God prompts us. Stan, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, my heart leapt with joy to see you come in today, so thank you. Appreciate it. Um, and so don't, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the songs that Brenda heard. Um, Steve, I'm going to need your help eventually today. Okay, Mark 6. We've been doing a series from the book of Mark, and uh, good stuff, I think. Uh, Mark kind of tells it like it is. All right, I'll give you a joke. This just really intrigued me. We were dialoguing in life group on Wednesday. Luke and Mark traveled around with Paul and Barnabas and Silas, and they traveled around a lot. And if you read Luke's account of what took place last week of Jairus' daughter getting raised from the dead and the woman with issue of blood, uh, Luke kind of tells it a little different than Mark. Luke was a physician, and when Luke tells it, he kind of says that uh, he went to the doctors and they couldn't make her better. But Mark puts a little dig in there. And he says, and the doctors made her worse. And I'm almost thinking that when Mark wrote that, he said, yeah, when Paul was coming after me, you didn't help me. So here's my little personal dig that he gave. But Mark, Mark is a guy who was changed by the power of the living God. He was transformed. He was a guy that when his first attempt to go out, he really wasn't successful. Paul rejected him. He's known as John Mark in the Gospels, in, in the book of Acts, I mean. And he went and God changed his life and gave him new opportunities, transformed him, challenged him for the change, did something different. And we're reading a section of his scripture today, his passage, his understanding of what Jesus said. In Mark 6, we start from verse 1. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country. Jesus had just done some miraculous things. Girl raised from the dead. A woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, and God healed her. Then Jesus went out and went to his own country, and his disciples followed him. How many here are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? You've accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. You've surrendered him not just as Savior, but his Lordship is resting in your life. Can I see your hands, please? How many here would say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? This message is for you. Those who have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, I would suggest you to take seriously the challenge that today, today when you hear his voice, that you don't walk out of this place without responding to the living God. But this message, I'm hitting it right at the disciples of Jesus Christ. So kick the Kevlar off. Strap yourself into your chair. I, I told Pastor Jim, they're never going to ask me to come back again. And if they do, then I didn't do it, what I heard to say to do. So that's all right. And when, he, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many hearing were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And the wisdom that's given to him, and such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the village in a circuit teaching. 
And he called the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper for their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter, stay there till you depart from that place. And what, whoever will not receive you or hear what you have to say, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Surely I say to you this, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than a day in the judgment for that city. So they went out, the disciples went out, and they preached that people should repent, and they cast out many devils, and they anointed with oil those who were sick and healed them. <clears throat> Father, I'm asking that you would open up this word in our hearts. You have been doing preparation or soil over this last year when you've been challenging us for change. You've been challenging us for new direction. You've been challenging the Lord over the last couple of years for change. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you once again that you would change us for that challenge that you're presenting before us. And that today you would challenge us for the change and the opportunities you want to bring us into. Lord, we don't want to be the same people right now that we will be one week from now. We don't want to be sitting in the same place of complacency, Lord. Do something in our hearts. Send us out from this place today, Lord, to reach the broken and the lost. Open up this word, Holy Spirit. I'm praying for a fresh anointing. I'm praying for words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic sense. Lord, I want to cooperate with what your Holy Spirit is doing. That you'd enable me to speak words into the very lives of people. You know what they're doing. I pray for a release of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. The evangelistic gift, the prophetic gifts, Lord. That would come forth today with power and authority. And in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Okay, you asked for it. What can we learn from this? I'm just going to give you five points. And then I'm going to load up the shotgun and give you both barrels. Number one, we have a high priest who can relate to us. I, that's what I got of the story. It is so cool that in verse 1 to 6, here is Jesus, the God of the universe, the one who just raised a little girl from the dead. And these people are offended him not because he healed in his own country, offended because he was a carpenter. Is this not the carpenter? How, how can God use him? Is this not an attorney? How can God use an attorney to lead worship? And we limit one another. We limit people. So Jesus understands what it's like to be put in that position where gifts are not allowed to flow. When you've been in your family, when you've been in your workplace, they say, we know this person. Who are you to preach to us? We know your past. We know your sins. We know your brokenness. Jesus understands what that's like. You have an intercessor, as it says in Romans 8. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's interceding. Hebrews tells us to run in because we have a high priest who cannot sympathize, who could not not sympathize with our weakness, but in all ways were tested as we were, tempted as we were, but he didn't sin. This intercessor knew what it was like to be rejected. The one who's sending you out is going to be praying for you. He says, I do know what that's like, Craig, to stand up and to suddenly do something for God and to say, nope, you can't do it here. Limiting giftedness, he understands. And I appreciate that about God. He knows what we're going through. He knows what it's like. This is the one who said, let there be light, and light went out. As far as I know, the universe has never stopped seeing the end of it. They keep finding new things. Standing there in the town could not do miracles because they were offended, because they said, well, he's a carpenter. He understands when you go to work tomorrow. And they go and they say, well, you're just a secretary. Who are you to tell us about Jesus? Who are you, Marilyn? We know your background. We know your past. You try to share with your family. You're not perfect. Jesus understands. 
and he's walking with us. And it's important we understand when we go out there, we have someone who's sending us out, who will stand alongside us because they understand. He understands what it's like when they rejected him. And he's going to intercede for you, and he's going to come alongside of you, and he's not going to leave forsaken. I want someone praying for me that understands my stuff and understands what I'm going through. It's a whole lot easier. Number two, the mission didn't change because Jesus was because they were offended at him. Did it change? Does Jesus have a new mission, Steve? 2,000 years later, the mission is still the same. It hasn't changed. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them, making disciples. The mission didn't change. It's important for us to understand this. The mission didn't change just because he offended. Has God got something different? Has he got an ace up his sleeve? Has he got some other game he's going to get us to play? He doesn't. The mission didn't change. He came for one reason and one reason only, and he left us behind for one reason and one reason only. Listen to this. Mark 1.38. But Jesus said to them, Let us go to the next town that I may preach there, because this is the purpose, this is the reason, this is why I came. Mark 2.17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. And at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus said, He spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission didn't change. It doesn't change. Well, they got mad at me at work. It didn't change the mission. You're still in the mission. This mission is still there. It's second down. You got two more downs. You press in. It's the end of the second period. You got another period. You understand this in sports. You understand this in the natural. You need to get this understanding inside of your heart. The mission doesn't change. Oh, I'm sorry, Andrew. Oh, they rejected you? Your neighbors pushed you away. Anyone else got a better idea now? No idea? Okay. God doesn't do that. He says, grow up, baby. I love you, but grow up. And to go back out there, the mission didn't change. Well, maybe, maybe if I just tell God that, you know, I don't accept that the mission goes away, it doesn't change. In fact, Jesus, what I like about it, he was rejecting his own town. He goes and becomes an itinerant preacher. He travels around a bunch of cities. And then he says, okay, they're going to reject my own town. Twelve of you, come here. I'm going to anoint you, and I'm going to give you gifts to the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do the same works I am. I'm just going to uh, twelve... Publify it. How do you like that for a word? That's a bushism. I'm going to take it and multiply it 12 times what I was able to do because now it's not just Jesus, it's 12 others also going out. That was his reaction because the mission didn't change. He sent them out. He anointed them. Mission didn't change, people. Got a God who's standing alongside, who understands, who's interceding, and the mission didn't change. And it doesn't change. And I'm going to start making you uncomfortable. And you say, some of us are already uncomfortable. If I don't make us all uncomfortable, I've not done my job today. I want us to get to a place of uncomfortableness saying, God, you've got to do something. Because I'm going to touch in on something. Only he can put a love in, his, in our hearts for the lost. Only he can put a love in us to want to give up the things that we've been playing with. Only he can give us this because we're so selfish. We're so self-centered. It's going to take God. So if you're not uncomfortable yet, I hope you get there. I say that with love. I say that with... I, I, I tell you, I... I really liked this before I was a pastor because I just did it and, you know, they kept inviting me back to places. But then I started caring about people and I cared deeply. But it's my compassion and my brokenness for this lost world. I can't go to Rainbow without feeling sorrow and brokenness for people. 
I can't go to work and I see the complacency as people are pouring millions of dollars into projects and it's not bringing them life. Jesus came to bring life and life in abundance. We're supposed to be ambassadors bringing that to this lost world, and we're not. Number three, he sends us out, but not by ourselves. Elijah was broken after he uh, took on the prophets of Baal, and he felt like he was all by himself because Jezebel was coming after him. He doesn't send you out by yourself. Look around the number of hands in this room of people that said, I want to be a disciple. I'm a follower. Carrie Kimmel and Liz Kimmel, we're in the same neighborhood. I don't have to reach the west side of St. Paul, Cherokee Park area all by myself. I got the Kimmels over there. We have other people in your workplace. I have other people in your families. You've got other people in your neighborhoods, in the grocery store, that are also praying for those people. He never sends us out all by ourselves. He sends us out two by two. He sends people out there. We were never meant to do it on our own. And he loves us, and he hooks us up with people. That's why the devil's been forcing relationships apart in marriages and homes. And people that don't necessarily have the same giftedness, if he can ever get us to get, keep us apart, it'll fall apart. This is a year of opportunity. I'm a little play of words. But if you don't have unity, we don't have opportunity. He sends us out, hooks us up with people that we might not normally naturally uh, hook up with because he's got a purpose for us. Working together, we can reach this world. Don't give up on this world. We have an intercessor who hasn't given up on it. He ever lives to intercede for it. He, he shed his blood and he's expecting us to do something more. So don't you dare give up on this world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Deuteronomy tells us that if one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. You're not having success in your ministry and the opportunities God do it. Hook up with somebody. Tell somebody else. Tell somebody else about uh, Victoria and Juno area. Start sharing. As they start sharing what's going on in their neighborhood, I start caring about that neighborhood. Suddenly I'm praying for their neighborhood, not caring it themselves. God never intended it to be by herself. I appreciate Jenny, who lives across the street from us, goes to a different church. We went to the same high school, but different church, and we pray for that neighborhood. I just think such great hope that neighborhood because across the street Jenny's praying for it. We're not on our own. He's hooked us up with other people. He sends us out but not to walk it out by ourselves. So you can breathe out a little bit there. Number four, all provision comes from the Lord. All provisions alone is from the Lord. It should not take an economic turmoil in this world. I mean, we have 90-some percent unemployment. We're all freaking out. I've been through the economic downturns in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and now the 2000s. He is our source of provision. We have got to get to the place. Abraham in Genesis 12 was told to go, get out of your kindred, leave everybody and just go and I'll take care of you. Abraham, being a great man of faith, loads everybody up, including Lot and all his kids, and they go across the desert and they keep doing it until the place where God breaks him. And he gets to the point, he says, listen to the king of Salem, I don't want you to even give me a shoe strap lest anyone thinks that I got provision from you. My source comes from God. We need to start looking to God for our total resources, physical, spiritual, emotional, all our financial provisions, all of our food, all of the stuff that we need, all of it. It's his, and he wants to provide for us. He said, in fact, he commands them in verse 8, commands them not to take anything for the journey. Our physical power, but also our spiritual power, the anointing, the equipping, when you lay hands on someone, if you think it has to depend on you, you're crazy. It doesn't. 
When you go out and try to witness to your neighbor, witness at work and preach the gospel and, and present it, if you think it's dependent on you, you're in trouble. He is your resource for the gifts. He is your resource. The only limit to it is you saying no to him and his sovereign call of God on your life. What about the emotional things? What about the strength, the safety, the peace because you're afraid to do something? What about the rest you need? God will provide it for you. He wants to bring wholeness to your life. John 15, 5, very famous verse, but we still don't understand. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. But in him, through him, our God, we shall do valiantly. But the mission didn't change. We still have an intercessor who's praying for us. He sends us out to walk this out with somebody else. But he wants to provide everything for us. He has got to be our total resources. I appreciate the people who have come from other nations that have stepped out and said, I'm going to trust God to show up here. And just trust him. I limit God. I get opportunities to do ministry overseas. I limit God by saying, well, hmm. And I limit him. Or I look at my schedule. I look at my own strength. Don't limit God. We've got to stop this. This is a year of opportunity or else it's not. What if we went and spent the next X number of months till 2010 going for it and nothing happens? Then to sit there one year from now saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we talked about that. And we didn't take it. We didn't take opportunities. Number five, and this is the, the cool part about this thing, is they did the stuff. And so will we. Verse 12 says, they went out and preached and they cast out many devils, anointed with people who were sick with oil, and they healed them. They did the stuff. Some of us are so afraid to try it, to step out when God says to step out. The first time I laid hands on someone that had their head split open in an accident scene, I had no real faith or confidence or assurance that God was going to heal them. I just did it because I heard to do it. And I watched the head close up there. No clue what I was walking into. When I was ordained, I had no clue what I was walking into. In 1988, when I convinced her to pack up and, and let's go to Bible school, no clue what I was walking into. I was tired of saying no to God. I was tired of saying, uh, saying uh, you can't and limiting him and, and stopping him. I, I appreciate what you did, Nancy, by singing. You didn't sit there, and again, I'm not encouraging everyone to sign up, and Brenda will really get mad at me, to sign up for worship if you can't sing, but I appreciate what you did. And you said, Lord, I just want to honor you somehow. I just want to bring glory to you. Not many mighty, not many mobile, but I'm going to sit there and I'm going to just present myself as a living sacrifice and do it. My heart challenge is this. We're not our own. Jesus is Lord. You proclaimed him Lord. It's not enough that you proclaimed him as Savior. We are not called to sit on our backsides waiting to go to heaven. And some of you are so consumed in trying to get your house built and your yard groomed, and everything else. And I appreciate all these things. But that's not what it's about. It's his lordship. His lordship. We bow to him. We must go because he said we must go. We are all called to preach and make disciples. All of us. No, no getting off the hook. It's going to look different. It's going to smell different. It's going to sound different. But all of us... See, that was the hidden agenda that somebody never told you when you were sitting there saying, oh, my life is all falling apart and I just can't make any sense of it and I'm tired of the drug-crazed life I'm living, the immoral life I'm living. And you came to the altar. Somebody should have told you his lordship meant when he says go, you go. When he says stop, you stop. And we're going to adjust that today. And we're going to deal with this stuff today. Because in this year of opportunity, I'm going to tell you a little secret that I found in my own life. Where the enemy stops us is when we get into sin or we say no, we say, I, I, uh, God could never use me. And then we pull back. 
It's not that God can't use us. We just kind of said, I'm just going to stay here, Lord. Um, I appreciate it. Send somebody else. In this year of opportunity, what if all of us rose up and said, okay, Lord, deal with whatever you want to deal with in my life. And I want to make myself available. You're sovereign. How you do it, that's your business. But I don't want to limit you. Because we'll suddenly multiply what takes place. The untapped power of the average believer has to be unleashed in order for real kingdom growth to take place. It'll only occur, in my opinion, when one-on-one discipleship has come to the forefront of personal and corporate ministry. Instead of everybody coming into the church to get somebody to pray over them and to preach a message, when we start taking personal responsibility. You want to know why people aren't reaching their neighborhood? It, it may be because of you. How God wants you to do, use you. I, I can't say. I just want to make us uncomfortable where we sit there a little bit and we say, okay, God, you're going to have to help us out. Let me read this to you. This is a great quote. It's from The Remnant by Larry Stockdale. Larry Stockdale has a very large church in Louisiana. Quote, What would happen in America if our churches were full of multipliers? Steve, you'll like this one. What would happen if each of them would win a soul and then that person got delivered of their inner bondages and their wounds and fully trained others to set people free. Each person discipled would set off a chain reaction of multiplication and the church would no longer be dependent on a personality or a presence of charismatic pastor, but on thousands of ambassadors. This is what the early church did. You can close your ears now, Steve. This is what the early church did without the benefits of buildings, tapes, Bibles, CDs, books, Concerts, dramas, computers, television, radio, webpage, blogs, Twitter, or anything else you can come up with. Their focus was on making disciples and multiplying them. And when we get our thinking straight about what is a normal, functional church, the pressure of performance will cease. End quote. When it comes to sharing the gospel and our faith with others, we come up with excuses why we can't do it or more specifically, why we won't do it. The reasons Christians don't take their faith seriously to the point that they share with others is we don't want to be bothered. It's the truth. We like the comfort. There's very few of us that really like conflict. Some of us are wired that way. Then we became Christian. We're you know, a little more Teflon there. I like it. I played hockey. I play hockey because I like conflict. I like it. I like the conflict. I like taking somebody into the board. I like the conflict. But most people do not like the challenge. In the secular job, part of my job deals with conflict. Resolution. I don't mind conflict, but some people don't like conflict. So they don't share. I saw a bumper sticker two weeks ago. It said, where are we going and why am I in this handbasket? And I thought, that's a pretty sad statement. It's a funny statement. And they had the little Jesus fish on there with the two legs and the chips inside of the fish. So it was a sarcastic slam on the Christians. But I thought that's pretty sad of the statement of the church. When people not only feel that that's the answer is to write a bumper sticker saying, I don't know where I'm going. All I know is I'm in a handbasket. That they would be so compelled to print thousands of them. Because I went to a website and I found T-shirts and coffee mugs and books and stuff that people really believe it. See, they're looking for answers. And we have the answers. But without motivation, you and I aren't going to do anything. We've got to get the godly motivation that comes from Jesus alone. In Matthew 9, verse 36 and 37, it says, Jesus, when he saw the multitude, was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenty, but laborers are few. Therefore pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. 
This pattern of compassion is throughout all of the gospel. In fact, it goes back further because it goes back to Genesis. That's what Jesus came to, was to restore our relationship that was broken when, when Adam chose to sin. Willfully said, God, I don't want to do what you want to do. I, I like Satan's idea better. Seems like a better deal. I like it. Jesus was able to see past the facade, saw the cry of their hearts. He saw through their sin. He saw the woman, the adulterous woman, the woman at the well, the woman who came that was brought and caught in adultery. He saw past those in John 4 and John 8. He saw past that and saw the brokenness of a sheep that was without a shepherd, and he had compassion. Where, grace, where sin abounds, grace does much more abounds, Paul says. God wants to develop into you and to me a compassion for the lost. God wants to conform us to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, and part of that is a compassion for the lost. And how many here would say, I have a huge compassion for the lost? Very few of us do. Some of us do. I, I can't walk through this world without seeing it. I, I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask. I, my life would be a whole lot easier. I'm really not a weepy guy. I like the, you know, I like the tougher guy image. But I, I cry easily as I go through this, this world, and I see the brokenness of lives. I see the brokenness of people, and I recognize where that compassion came from. It's the same place you got it, Steve. It's the same place you got it. It comes from surrendering our life to Jesus Christ, and He puts that compassion. And some of us remember what He took us out of and realizes there's a whole bunch of other people stuck in the same handbasket going to hell, and we want to rescue them. I love Steve Camp's song way back in the 80s. He says, Lord, I want to, some people want to have a mission in the sound of church bells. Give me a mission a yard from the gate of hell. Reinhard Bonnke says, Lord, give us a compassion to go and plunder hell to populate heaven. We can't work that compassion up. Jesus has to bring it. So if you don't have it, you're in a great place. If he's the author and finisher of our faith, if he is the supplier of our needs, and he said, ask not, you ask not and you have not because you ask not, and he says, knock and the door will be open, and he says, uh, you come to me with all your needs and I'll meet them in abundance, then ask him, say, God, give me that compassion heart. And watch what he does. And watch because he messes up your life in a good way. And you'll be driving down the road thinking you got everything all figured out and he'll take you another direction. But there are people going to hell and he wants to change that. So I want to ask you some questions. Have you ever thought about what you're doing here on this earth? Have you ever thought about why you're a Christian? Paul says, I pressed into apprehend that for which I was apprehended. Paul had it all together. He was a great leader. He was trained in the in the great school. He knew the Levitical law. He was minding his own business. He saw a bunch of people gathering, the believers, the Christians. He found out that people liked him. He liked him. He was a big NRA gun-toting guy that went in there, and they gave him authority to go and grab these people and take them to prison. He liked it. So he's going with papers in his hand to destroy another church, and God interrupts him in the book of Acts chapter 9 and says, Paul, I've got a different plan for you. So Paul said the vision, the mission, and purpose of his life was to press in to find out why God stopped him on that road and said, I've got a different purpose for you. Why are, why are you here today? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever asked God, what's my purpose? What's my vision? What am I supposed to do with my life? Let me tell you this. If you cash in God's plan and calling for your life, for your plans, your little agenda, your self-centeredness, your self-oriented, my feeble plans, you will not only make the worst mistake in your life, but you will be doing a classic mistake that has been repeated throughout the history of the world. Because you did not know the day of your visitation. You did not know the time of the anointing of the Lord. The men of Issachar, it says in First Chronicles, they understood the times. Jesus said there and he wept at Jerusalem before the cross and he said, listen, I have longed to gather you 
but you've rejected the prophets and you've stoned those who are sent. And I wanted to gather you because you did not know. That was the grieving in the heart of Jesus Christ, is they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not know the day that they're living in. Your God and my God wants fruit in the earth. And say, oh, yeah, I'm looking at one. He wants a different kind of fruit. The mission hasn't changed. He wants to see people saved. He weeps for the broken lives of the, all through this world. Oftentimes you sit there and this tragedy happens and they say, where was God? Weeping over the situation, longing for someone to explain where God was in that situation. Longing for an ambassador to stand up and defend him and defend his reputation and talk about the brokenness of this world and the sinful creation. But we've been so selfish. We've been so self-centered. We've been consumed with our own stuff. Everything revolves around what I want to do. My time, my money, my energy, mine, 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 mine. Consumed, we've bought the lie of the American gospel. We've believed it and we, and we really think about, well, what about the people who do not know what you know? What about the people who have never had one sin forgiven? What about the people who right now, literally across this city, are sitting in a living room contemplating killing themselves? Japan, they've got a park where people go. It's called Suicide Park. Where they go, they set apart a park for people to kill themselves. What about those people? Somebody's got to get in their heart to go out there and reach these people. Somebody's got to say, God, you've got to show me how to do it. God, take me to these places. Somewhere, literally right now, there are people sitting in a drug-crazed stupor saying, there's got to be more than this. We sit in the church and say, God, there's going to be more than this. This can't be how you meant us to have church, God. What about those people? And you sit there. They're looking for truth. And you sit there with truth on your lap because you don't care. God, make us care. Make us care. We're so self-centered. We want to make sure we got to church today. Did we get all of our needs met? Did they notice that I shaved off my mustache? Did they notice that I didn't get a haircut this week? Mine, mine, mine. We're called that God has called us to a rescue of a dying world. You are either part of the solution or you're part of the problems. We don't need more Christians in America wasting their lives. We don't need more Christians in America messing up their life. We have enough. Quota's been fulfilled. We have enough. Enough young people on drugs that are Christians, enough people messing up their life with immorality that are pastors. We got enough, got the quota filled. So if any of you are thinking of doing it, don't. We got enough. We need some people who will say, Lord, would you do something different in my life that I really represent you? I had a neighbor come over and interrupt my life. I was out snow blowing, it was a blizzard like condition, and I just wanted to get inside. And he, and he said, he came up to me, scared me because I couldn't see him. It was so cold and bitter that night. And he said, and he wanted to talk about eschatology. And he's not a Christian. And he doesn't go to church. And he really doesn't care for religious things. He said, I don't have time for that stuff. But he said, something's going on inside of him. And he said, this can't be the way the world ends. And I know you're a minister and, and I know you're a Christian. He said, I thought I'd ask you. And I thought, God, this is a year of opportunity. If we won't go to them, he's going to bring them to you. You got to get yourself ready. But this world that we live in is going to hell. And the answer and the hope are not Christians. The world's loaded with Christians. What God wants and needs and demands are disciples. 
That word means a wholehearted following of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It means saying, Lord, in the areas you want to strip off my life, go ahead. If there's areas you want to change, go ahead. I just want to follow you. Too many people walk around under the cloakship of second-generation Christianity. And some of you are still resting in the fact that in 1979, November, you, you came to the altar. And Jesus is looking for people to come to the altar daily and die and say, Okay, Lord, I've made a big mess in my life over the last 30 years. But I'm going to trust you in this year of opportunity. I'm going to trust that you can send me out. I'm going to trust that you can do something in my life. We've had a lot of people saying they follow Jesus, but they've never surrendered to his lordship. We're so content sitting on our backsides waiting for Jesus to be returned or to take us home that we don't want to be bothered by the things of God and something is wrong there. It's wrong. It's wrong. A disciple is someone who's radically sold out to Jesus in every area of your life. There are areas of our life that we have not surrendered to Jesus. We think we have, and we still hold on to them. And that's wrong. It's not based on a performance. It's based on surrender to do whatever he wants you to do. This is not about legalism. This is not about not playing Frisbee golf or eating vanilla ice cream or do you drink Coke or don't drink Coke. It's not about that. It's about saying, Lord... I don't know why you want me to stop doing that, but I'm going to surrender to you. And it's not about hypocrisy. If Andrew feels a call to not have a TV in your house, that's his calling. But Andrew better get rid of the TV if God says to get rid of the TV. And don't make a rule about it. Surrendering to whatever. It doesn't matter what, because some of the the situations I got myself into ministry is simply because I listened and I went a different direction. I was at a motorcycle accident once, and I had come home from work, and I heard to pick up a check, and for 12 to 15 years, she always took the check to the bank. It was just, you know, just some, you know, give you up the responsibilities or whatever. I felt led to go home and get the check. She says, why are you getting the check? I said, I just think I'm supposed to go to the bank. doesn't even make sense. There's no reason to. But because I did, I drove down a certain road. I saw an accident, and I was put in a spot where I was able to pray for someone, and I saw a miracle take place. Sometimes when we learn to say yes, if you don't say yes to getting rid of things that are really no big deal, you won't say yes when God says to do something. You're going to limit him. It's learning. The passage that's been going through Kathy's uh, last couple weeks was from Nehemiah, where it says the people not only rejected, but they stiffened their necks and they shrugged their shoulders to what God said to do. Pretty sad. It's time for us to not be those people. It's time for that not to be the, the history of the church. And I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking to the body of Christ. But somewhere, somehow, we've got to get to terms of this stuff. It's time for us to ask this question. When was the last time you asked God for permission? You say, what are you talking about? Yesterday morning when you got up, did you say, God, what do you want me to do? I'm not talking about good. Is it okay if I have... Tweeties or Wheaties or Shrinkies or Cheerios. I'm talking about saying, God, this Saturday, what do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to spend it? I almost missed an opportunity to start sowing relational seeds to someone who's not a Christian by not listening to my... I almost missed an opportunity, but I sat there and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then you're going to have to show me how to do it because I've got Saturday all blocked out and I've already got a plan what I'm going to do in my world, in my time, and how it's going to be. And God gave me an opportunity and showed me. And suddenly I found myself up in Duluth yesterday sowing relational seeds so that God can preach the gospel in someone's life who is otherwise hardened to it, potentially. We've got to learn to surrender to him. We've got to learn to trust him. We've got to learn to say, Lord, I I want to know if it's okay with you. I think sometimes he's going to hear, you need to go take a vacation, Craig. It's been a long time. You need to get away. Take your wife out. 
Nice dinner, is that what you're saying, Sue? Sometimes when we surrender, he will tell us to do things because some of us are so legalistic and stiff, we won't go and enjoy the things of this world. Other of you have been enjoying too much of the world, and he wants you to stop. He wants you to let go of some things. But God wants us to grow up and to wake up. We've heard the word over and over again, to wake up and to grow up. I know Christians 30 years old in the Lord that can't give up stuff. They still act like babes, babies. They can't give up this. They can't give up that. Endless list of what they still continue to hold on, and they're going to take it to their grave because they've never surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying when you do that, you'll never be tempted. You'll be tested. You'll be tried. All hell itself will break out against you. But coming to that point of saying, Lord, I've just been dealing with this way too long. It's been my secret sin. You know what grieves me? is When I, when I listen to the stories in the paper about some of these ministers who have fallen, uh, one in particular I'm thinking of, his whole marriage, he dealt with that sin. He struggled with it. He tested. He never gave into it, really, but he, he struggled. It's like time to get this stuff exposed and say, Lord, I've been dealing with this way too long. This secret sin, the secret temptation, even if you've never given into it. I, I just got to grab and say, Andrew, would you pray for me? Can I share this with you? Let's deal with this thing so there's no limitation because a disciple is willing to go and follow. Let me tell you this. Write this down somewhere. Being saved by grace is no excuse to remain immature. Amen. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about, Lord, there's areas in my life that are stunted. There's areas in my life that have not produced fruit. I want to be a, a fruit bearer for you. I want to be someone that you can go and say, this is my own. This is my fear is that we walk into heaven pushing our wheelbarrow full of all the great things we did with God, and the great fire judgment comes down, and it turns out to be wood, hay, and stubble. That's pretty sad. We still got salvation. We still got eternity. We're going to be with God and rejoicing. But I don't want to look at it. And here's Andrew with a pile of gold, precious metals, and all this great stuff. And I had a huge flash that went up. But there was nothing at the end. That's pretty sad. It's time for us, not about producing stuff, but just surrendering our lives more and more. You say, you know what? I can't do it on my own. Good. You can't. And I can't. And none of us can. But Jesus wants to help you become a whole person. So you're at the point that instead of needing counsel, you'll start giving counsel. Instead of sitting there always learning, you're going to start teaching. Instead of being in a place of getting prayer for healing, you're going to start praying for healing. Instead of having someone else go witness to your neighbors, you're going to witness to your neighbors. Instead of everyone always doing something for us, you've matured and discipled to the point that you're doing the stuff and you've got a bunch of people following behind you. Because God's trusted you to do that. It's time. If this church is going to grow, if the body of Christ can have impact in this year of opportunity, we've got to say, Lord, I've got to grow up. I'm tired of everyone else explaining what the Word of God says. There's areas of ministries that are being released in this church to create opportunities. Some of you say, well, I'd get more involved in a life group if it was better. Start a life group. Find a way to start a life group. You start doing it. I don't know how to do it. Then come to the classes. Say, Pastor Kerr, would you teach me? You're doing these classes. I take a class that they teach me how to grab her. That's her job, if you can put it that way. It's also her calling. It's also her giftedness to come alongside of it. But her hidden agenda is to mature you up so that you'll go work with other people. That was Jesus' hidden agenda. That, that's what those, those 12 didn't get. And why they were sitting there with 120 in the upper room sitting there saying, so what happened? James and John still trying to figure out what he was talking about, that they wouldn't get the right or left hand seat in this thing. Still didn't get it. And here some of us are 30 years old in Christ, and we still don't get it. He wants us to grow up and to go out and reach the lost and do the same thing they did. 
anoint with oil, and heal people. I'm not telling you this stuff because I'm trying to bring condemnation. But I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you where something else potentially this stuff leads to. Are you aware that the one we're following got killed? Are you aware that most of his disciples got killed? This very thing may cost you your life in the natural or certainly in your flesh. That's who you're following. I don't say that to scare you. I say it so that there's not a breaking of rank when you just do whatever God wants you to do. So that you say yes to what he says yes to. You say, I agree with you, Lord, whatever you want to. And so if he lets you live here for another 70 years, that's great. If he lets you live for another seven minutes, that's fine too. But that you know what you know and you don't stop following him just because you're afraid. That's what a disciple does. Maturity. Following him. Even if it means you have to let go of something. God is looking for someone to tell people that Jesus loves them. God is looking for someone who put his, he can put his love into their hearts. Someone who will stand up and say, Jesus is the way. You want to know where you are and where you're going? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. Somebody to stand up there and to say, this is the answer. This is what you're looking for. I can get you out of that handbasket and get you going another direction, unless you want to be there. The creator of the universe wants to use you and he wants to use me. And you may be thinking, you know, I'm not a preacher. I'm not eloquent in speech. Quit using the Moses excuse. You have the Holy Spirit. Quit using that excuse. He's not looking for someone else. He doesn't have a different agenda. He's chosen you. He created. We are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ is what it says. He redeemed you for a purpose. If he didn't, then here's what we would do. We would come and we'd have an altar call and you come in repentance and we'd have Steve up here to be praying with you and then all of a sudden Andrew here would go and take you back there in the baptismal tank and we'll baptize you and then I'm not an anorite person, but we get somebody here that has a gun and we start picking you off one by one and sending you to heaven. He redeemed your life for a purpose. He redeemed some of you in your youth and your infancy and your marriages for a purpose of being an ambassador to this lost and broken world. And then someone else has something else you have to show it to because I don't see it. I would rather find something else. But I tell you this, I am so grateful for the people in high school that witnessed to me in the 70s. I'm so grateful for the people when I was in college in the mid-70s that prayed for me. I'm so grateful for the people that continued to press and share the gospel with me even though I didn't want to hear it. I am so grateful that 29 and a half years ago, this gospel was still alive when the broken, drug-crazed, immoral person was looking for answer and someone said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And someone came up to you and kept the gospel going until it came to you. It's time for us to get that in our heart and saying, there's no other plan B. There's no other group of people. We are the ones. We are the ambassadors. I'm not talking about Bethel Christian Fellowship. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. See, if the enemy can divide us from church to church, forgetting that he is the head of the body, then he'll continue to try to separate us. All of us as Christians. I hope that if you run and you never come back next week, that you go to another church where someone else says the same thing to you. I, I don't like this. And I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you something. I'd rather preach a message on how much God loves me. Last time I preached, last month over Minneapolis, oh man, I like those messages. It's how much God loves me. And how his relentless pursuit of me. And his love for me. And he's the, he's the groom and I'm the bride. I just love those messages. And the Father's love, I love those messages. See, I have, to, I have to listen to this. And I have to let it roll through my heart. And so tomorrow when I'm driving down the road and I see someone, I have to respond to it. And I have a wife who's very gracious in this, but will say, I heard this great message, and uh, the thing you're struggling with, I, I can show you where it is. And she'll pull tapes off my shelf and say, 
You need to listen to this. I have to reconvict myself of this. I want us to make uncomfortable because if nothing else, in this time and season of fasting prayer, we say, God, you've got to show us how to do it. Because what we've been doing hasn't worked. And they're not coming. And we've been reaching out to neighbors. And they're not saying yes. So you say, well, I'm not even sure what kind of qualities God's looking for. Let me give you a real simple list. God is looking for ordinary people. Now, I just I realize that some of you won't sign up because you think you're extraordinary. We have a special place over here. We're going to pray for you after and help you to realize you're just an ordinary person. God uses ordinary people. People who love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. You say, I don't love the Lord with my heart and all my mind and all my strength and all my soul. Then that's the first thing you need to start off with. And say, God, give me that quality. Give me a compassionate love for you. Put it inside of me. Because you can't work up a love for God. You can't. We're too selfish. We'll always find our way. Prone to wander. Prone to lead the love of the one I am. We find a blade of grass and like a sheep, we go to the blade of grass. The, the, The scriptures are full of it. No matter what God did, Israel turns her back. But if God puts that love inside of you, I tell you, you'll lose sleep over it. You'll lose food over it. Just wanting to be in his presence. You'll sit there and say, oh man, I wish I'd taken her class, Mary Lynn's class. You'll be drawn into worship. You're consumed into worship. Brenda will say, I just can't wait for the day when, when no more preaching is done and we're just caught up in worship. God's got to put that inside of you. Ordinary people, people that love him, people will say yes when he calls. If you're ordinary, if you've got a place that you want to love God, if you'll say yes, you're the perfect candidate for it. People who will look to him for what to say and how to do it. Throughout the history of church and throughout the Bible, we see story after story after story after story of God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You're a perfect candidate. Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak vessels of the world to put to shame things that are mighty. Not many mighty. Not many noble. It's, the purpose of it is to give God the glory. That's why he loves it. In your brokenness, in your... Uh, he doesn't like the sin part, so that's why we deal with the sin. He doesn't like the flesh part, so that's why we deal with the sin. I'm talking about your imperfections. There are people that you'll be able to minister different than I would ever be able to. Not just geographically, just personality-wise. We all like different personalities. We all receive from different personalities. To me, it was a guy that had gotten in trouble with the law that witnessed to me that was effective. It was not the Christian who had grown up in a good home and then made a commitment. It was one that I could relate to my background. That, that was the one. He really can get you out of the drugs? Yep. Really can stop doing this stuff? Yep. Oh, tell me more about it. That's the one. So some, every one of us have these perfect testimony of God's grace in our life and the things he did in our life. Every one of us. Some of you were raised as a child in a Christian home and you didn't go through the stuff that I went through. Some of you had godly parents and godly grandparents and you, your testimony is great. We overcome it with a word in our testimony. But God wants to do a work in our lives that we stop limiting him by saying, oh Lord, get my brother. He does a much better job. He doesn't stutter. We've got to stop this. Because in that story of Moses, he didn't back off, did he, Dwayne? He says, you're not getting off the hook on this one. You're going to continue to be it. You're my man. I don't care what you think. You can take your brother Aaron with you, but you're going to go do it. And he's not backing off on this. He won't relent. I don't know if you figured this out yet. I've figured this out. He's not relenting. He's up in this thing. He's making us dissatisfied with our jobs, dissatisfied. We get the stuff and we're not any happier. I've been in multimillionaires' homes. They're no happier than you or I. 
The only difference is they got a little more money in the bank. And so then there's economic turmoil. I have one of my clients lost 41% of their investments. As a multimillionaire, 41% of it will never make the money they lost. They're no happier than you or I are. That's pretty sad. We should be happy. Peter says we should always be ready to give a, an account for the joy that's in us. Some of us don't have the joy because of the sin, and it's time for us to deal with that. I'm very sensitive that we're all at different places and God's dealing with stuff in our lives. We've got to get in that posture saying, God, just do something in my life. So how do we respond? Isaiah 60 says the world is getting darker. It talks about gross darkness, not Andrew and Sarah gross darkness, different grossness darkness. We can't put too much hope in the politicians figuring this all out. They may solve the financial crisis of this world. They might, and I, and I pray they do, because I don't, I don't like going through economic hard times. But they'll never solve the moral issues. They'll never solve that issue that's in their heart. They'll never solve that part that is divinely crying out to saying, what am I doing here and why am I in a handbasket? That's the body of Christ's job. That's the church's job. That's the purpose of it. The only hope for our world is a spiritual awakening through Jesus Christ. We've got to get this gospel out. We've got to work harder in this year of opportunity. We've got to put ourselves in a position. You say, well, working harder, what does that look like? Lord, I'm not backing off. I'm going to stay in this, and I'm going to meet you every day, and I'm going to knock on the door every day with you and say, Lord, here I am again. I'm ready to go out. And get it in your hearts as you leave the workplace, as you leave your neighborhoods, as you go out there, that God would burn something in our hearts that... You know, I'm driving home from Duluth yesterday saying, Lord, did I miss an opportunity? Should I have and I started thinking of people. Should I have talked to this one or not talked to that one? Am I doing? You did what you asked me to do. Okay, I just want to make sure. Did I do what I'm supposed to do? So then I went to the gym last night when we got home late, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, so am I supposed to? Well, I walked in, and I had four TVs all to myself, and nobody else was in the gym. It was a sports paradise. So what do I do, Lord? I sat there, and I listened during that quiet time saying, what am I supposed to do? I'm in an empty room, Lord. Who do I witness to? Who do I talk to? Who do I render my heart to? It's quite possible that God has placed you in this moment for a time such as this. That's what Mordecai said to Esther in Esther 4.14. Some of you wished you had been born a different time. Some of you wished you had been living a different time, that your kids were in a different time, in a different social, economic time, as well as a different moral time. I think God has strategically said, I want to use you. Because you're the light, you're the salt, you're the purpose, you're the 12 that I'm sending out. You don't think these guys were scared? Sure, they were scared. But we've got to make a difference, and God wants you if you let them. If the worship team would come on up here. In the book of Matthew, I'm, going to, I'm not going to go through it. In the book of Matthew, write this down, Matthew 10, verses 1 to 42. Jesus gives a, clear, a longer list of the same passage. Right before he sends the 12 out, right after um, Jairus' daughter was, was raised from the dead, and right before the beheading of John the Baptist. And he gives this longer list. And he's very clear with them uh, that they did not need to worry about what to even say. Don't even worry about what you're going to say, he says, when the moment you need the words, I will give you the words when he sent them out. He comes down on them a lot harder in, in going out there looking to themselves, but don't look to yourself for spiritual provision. He goes and warns them about people not wanting them to like him. He said, if they, if they hated the master, what are they going to do to you? There's a nice warning in there on why we need to grow up because this warfare out there. I'll tell you something. It's warfare. And if you don't know that, you need to get an understanding. It's a real war with the real devil trying to grow up real souls. 
That's reality. This thing that we signed up for was not some kind of groovy trip that we were supposed to go on. Otherwise, like I said, let's go take her to the parking lot, let's put a pool in there, and let's have a nice social club. And let's have fun coming to church once again. But God's got a different calling and a different purpose. The house of God is a place to come in and worship him and to get changed and equipped and to go out there and to reach all the gospel, all the nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not coming so you can check it off in your calendar. Jesus took care of that when he paid for our death on the, on the cross. It's not. And with home churches, you can just stay at home and get about 10 other people together and have your own church. It's not about coming here. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to come into his presence and to be worshipped and to be changed. It's to be equipped. That's what the purpose of the LEDTS thing is about. It's about being equipped and changed. And signed up, well, I don't want to take that class. You better take that class because you might need it. There's numerous times I have been grateful for the things that have been placed into my life that I never thought I would need. The classes, the school of hard knocks classes that I took or went through. Let's pray. And here's the posture I'd like you to do for a response. And then we're going to sing, I think we're going to sing I Surrender. Okay. As I said, when I went to Bible school, no clue what I was getting into. When I said yes to be a deacon, no clue what I was getting into. When I said yes to being an elder of a church, local church, no clue. When I said yes on March 12, 1995, to being a pastor of a church, definitely no clue what I was getting into. But in all these instances, in every single one, the same song kept coming to me, and that was I Surrender All. This is an appropriate response for us just to go, and I would encourage you, um, you know, um, I could either do the open your eyes and look around and everyone staring at each other, or just put yourself in a posture. Just kind of a strange thing. Ask people, they want to pray to receive something, and they come like this. Posture of prayer. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to criticize you. God knows your heart. Rend not your heart, not your garments. Rend your heart before God. So put yourself in a position right now, and for some of you it might be a physical Put your hands out. Put yourself in a position and say, Lord, I want to surrender to you. Father, I want you to use me. And so I just surrender. I say, that's it. And the picture that came to me in the first service was the, the squad cars pulling up and the flashing lights and, and the Lord saying, come out with your hands up and, and saying, I surrender all, Lord. I, I surrender. Don't send the dogs after me, Lord. I surrender. Don't, don't, don't taste me, Lord. I surrender. I, I'm tired of this, Lord. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of knowing that you've got a manhunt out after me, Lord. I surrender all. I come out with my hands up, Lord. Don't shoot. Whatever you do, don't shoot. I surrender. No more wrestling with you. No more fighting with you. I surrender, Lord. I don't know what you want to do. I want to be your laborer. I don't even know what I can offer you, Lord, but I come to you, Lord. I don't have a lot. I'm an ordinary person, but I give you what I got, Lord. You made me. Here it is, Lord. Everything you've given to me, Lord. My finances, my resources, my kids, my wife, my husband, my parents, my home. I give it to you, Lord. I surrender all. The areas, the secret areas of sin that I've been holding on, Lord, I just surrender it. I don't, wanna, I don't want any hindrance from the gospel being preached through my life, Lord. I thank you that when I, when I sin and I confess my sin, you are just and faithful to cleanse me of not only my sin but all unrighteousness. I thank you, Lord. But the grace that is resting in this house right now, Lord, I pray that it would be a grace that convicts our hearts to surrender and no more holding back. Uh, someone had a, a prophetic word during the prayer time, I think on Thursday, and they had an image of God trying to do surgery in this house. And they saw an image of multiple hands pushing back the knife and saying, you can't do it here, Lord. Like Kathy said, they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks. Oh, God, rid us of that stuff. 
rid of, some of us don't even know we're doing it to you, Lord. We're, we're so unaware. I thank you that your grace is good enough to change our hearts without condemnation. I pray against any condemnation of the enemy coming after of areas of sin that we have surrendered and we still struggle in. Lord, I pray for mercy and grace. Lord, I thank you, as Nancy so eloquently said, you love us. That's what the whole thing's about. You love us. And I thank you, God. I thank you that we can't do anything to change your love. That you loved us while we were yet sinners. So how much more must you love us now? But God, we surrender. I offer my life to you today. It's not much, Lord, but it's yours. You made me. I'm, I'm just return the favor. Lord, I want to be a soldier. I want to be a follower. I want to hear your voice. I pray for ears that would suddenly hear God's voice. I pray that the word would come alive in heart. Lord, make it come alive to me. Lord, show me my purpose. Show me my destiny. Lord, I surrender all.